Hello, and welcome to More Than Words, a podcast about treating the whole child brought to you by the Reading and Language Learning Center. I'm your host, Tristan, and today I'm joined by dyslexia advocate Lorraine Hightower to discuss parent advocacy. Hi, Lorraine. How are you? Hi, Tristan. So nice to be with you today. Nice to be with you as well. We're really excited to have you here to chat about advocacy. Um, So just start off with telling us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Sure, I would love to. Um, So as you said, I am a uh, certified dyslexia advocate and consultant. I work under the mission of trying to ensure that the one in five children who have dyslexia have the supports and services that they need to be successful. So my team and I do that in a a couple of different ways. I help parents advocate through the um, advocate and I should say navigate through the special (laughs) education system in the public schools. Many parents need hands-on direct support doing that. And then we also provide parent advocacy for parents who are trying to learn what they need to know to perhaps advocate for their own children on their own in the public school system. But um, I think equally as important, we, we try to align with organizations and associations to affect local and statewide and even national um, change as it relates to literacy. And uh, that's a hot topic these days in terms of early literacy curriculums and how we are teaching our kids to read. So it's a, it's a, big, a big mission that we try to impact. Yeah. That's awesome. So you mentioned state and national, but what, where are you located? And if listeners were going to go find you, where are you? Sure. So um, my office is based out of Lansdowne, Virginia, but I do work across the country. Primarily I'm supporting parents in, in the state of Virginia, but we have helped parents outside of the state as well. Perfect. And so if people were going to go find you online, where, where would they go? Sure. So you could just search for um, Lorraine Hightower. That's L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E. And then Hightower is just like it sounds. H-I-G-H-T-O-W-E-R. LorraineHightower.com. And um, I think I've been told when people Google me that they're able to easily locate us. And we also, (laughs) you can um, just type in Lorraine Hightower on LinkedIn or Facebook. We also have a presence there. Perfect. That is exactly what we wanted to know. So I'll make sure to link that in the show notes so people can find you super easily. Um, And then of course they can always Google you. (laughs) Yes. These days you can find just about everybody you need to find on Google. So (laughs) (laughs) all righty. Well, let's just hop into it. Let's get a good baseline. So for starters, what is parent advocacy and why in the world do we need it? So, you know, from my lens, um, parent advocacy is really the act of publicly supporting a cause or an individual. And, you know, this is such a difficult time, Tristan, you know, with the medical pandemic and in in my, from my perspective, also an educational pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I am talking to parents every day and sharing with them that if you are concerned about your child's education or special education, the only way in my opinion, to create change around that is to speak up, speak for, um, and and conduct outreach to try to um, make a difference. And so to me, that really is, it's a time of great parent advocacy on many levels. Yeah. So how in the world do they prepare ahead of time? You said, you know, reach out when you start to notice an issue, but how do they start preparing to advocate for their child? Yes. I think that's a great question. Um, And there's 
obviously many different levels for advocacy for the community of children that we serve. Parents are primarily looking to advocate because they are seeing that what it what their children are being asked to do in the classroom, they cannot do. Right. And um, with students who have dyslexia, this might be very basic academic skills like reading, spelling, writing numbers, and they're reversed. So the parents that I talk with are looking to advocate out of a place of concern that my child cannot meet your basic um, academic expectations. So I, I would say for that parent, they wanna start by talking with the teacher. And it really is that simple. So to me, the, the beginning step of parent advocacy is outreach. And if it's because you're concerned about what's happening in the classroom, you're going to want to start having a conversation with the teacher, the old-fashioned, you know, parent-teacher <laughs> conference. Right. And then from there, that teacher who's with your child um, will give you their hopefully recommendation on how significant the concern is, what can be done to further explore. Is this something that your child may need special education supports and services around, or is it because there, you know, other issues were going on in the classroom. It's been a rough week. Let's just give it a little bit more time. Although that is a that is a, a concern of mine, the giving it more time. So I'll, I'll leave that for another question. But yes, I think it starts with outreach. I think it starts with communication, asking questions, learning what are your options if you have concerns as a parent. Um, what would the follow-up look like, um, seeking to understand. And, you know, it sounds so simple, but in this day and age, everyone has a million things on their to-do list. So we do tend to put off even the simple email. Hey, I noticed my child had a difficult time with this assignment. And I am constantly, uh, whenever I can, um, trying to suggest to parents, do not wait. Do right. not wait. Do not wait. Send that email, make that phone call, write that letter, whatever it is. Because if it turns out that your child will need to be considered for special education supports and services in the public school system, it's a timely process. It takes yeah. a lot of time. Right. So I don't know if that was helpful or if you want me to elaborate oh, yeah. a little bit more, but it, for my community, that's a little bit of what parent advocacy starts, how it starts out and kind of what it looks like. No, that's great. Um, and you mentioned special education supports and services. So a lot of times what people hear is an IEP. So what, mm -hmm. what's an IEP and maybe what's a sure. 504 plan? And maybe you can talk about what those two things are and what they mean. Yes, absolutely. So in the public school system, there are um, two, let's say, ways that uh, children who have learning disabilities are really any type of a difference can be supported. So uh, you asked about an IEP that stands for an individualized education program. Now, many parents think it's a plan. So I do want to clarify, it's an individualized education program. Okay. And to me, that's even more significant than a plan. Right. Um, but that's truly what it stands for. And in that case, this is um, a, you know, a federal, uh, it's a federal regulation. And it basically says if we have a student who meets the criteria because of their disability, that they require an individualized education program that is based on their unique needs, and we're going to give them services and accommodations to help them make progress, that is a, a very weighty document. And it yeah. does put quite an obligation on the school district. So it, I think it's why parents are always like, I think I need this IEP. And what is this IEP? And how do I utilize this IEP? So it is it is significant in that it does put quite an obligation on the school district to help your child improve in these areas. Now, a um, 504 plan, conversely, is more of, um, let's just say it is under more of 
the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, it's more um, from a disability lens uh, to to create equal access and Mm -hmm. to not discriminate against people who have a medical disability of some type. And the criteria there is a little bit different from an IEP. It's not so much about underachievement. It's more about how substantially restricted is this individual due to one of their um, major life activities being impacted. So, you know, just a quick example of that is if you have a child who has ADHD, they have a hard time attending. That's a neurobiological medical difference. And so their attention, their concentration is substantially restricted. Then that 504 plan may have very specific or should have, I would say, very specific accommodations on how they're going to learn. You know, maybe they're going to have preferential seating. So they're right up front at the point of instruction. Maybe they're going to have access to um, sensory seating or fidgets so that they can do, do something that allows them to attend and have more stamina. So those would be um, listed out. And then as we said in IEP, we can talk more about the components of it, but it is more of an education program, right? less of an accommodation plan. Okay. So you mentioned talking about the the different things that are in an IEP. So what are are those things that are important to consider when drafting? Sure, absolutely. And just to take a step back, when a child is found eligible for those um, special education supports and services, that's when the school district will propose either a 504 plan or an IEP. Okay. So when we're talking about an IEP, they have uh, 30 days in which they can propose this. And I think it's important for parents to know the proposal should be based on all available data that was discussed when that child was considered for um, eligibility. And uh, many parents feel like, I think they don't understand how the IEP was created, what information went into the IEP, but all of the data, school testing, private testing, parent input, all of that should be considered when a school district is drafting an IEP. And then the components of the IEP are what are the child's needs? Mm. What are their present levels of performance? That information is supposed to determine the goals, the services, and the accommodations that that child is going to need to access and make meaningful progress in the grade level curriculum and to help address any gaps. So too often what I see happen in some school districts is parents will just be sent, you know, some sample goals or they'll be given like one piece of the IEP and they don't really understand this is supposed to be a proposal for an entire program that is designed to meet your child's unique needs and help close achievement gaps and areas that have been identified. Right. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of it rests in the parents' hands. What do they have the right to do? Like if a school district comes back with a certain proposal and you're like, I don't actually agree with that. I don't think that's going to work for my kid. What can they do? Are they entitled to requesting other things? Yes. I love that you asked that because again, um, part of my mission is to educate and empower parents, right? Because I, I tend to say, with everyone that I work with, parents are hands down the best advocates for their children, right? right. They, they know them the best. They spend all their time with them and that they are considered equal members of their child's IEP team. Many parents don't realize that that is how the uh, federal regulations and law look at them. They are equal members of their child's team. What does that mean? It means they share in the decision-making right. um, of what is appropriate for their child. It means Do they agree that the school has identified 
all of the needs appropriately? Are there more that should be considered? Do they have all of the data? So to your question, if the parent is in disagreement, let's say, with a school's testing or evaluation that they've done, they do have the right, if they disagree, to go and get their own private evaluation at school district's expense by a qualified individual who is not part of the school system. Wow. And that is one of their procedural safeguards that many parents are not aware of. And it can be critically important to see if that outside evaluation corroborates with or refutes the school district's findings. Again, all to the uh, point of trying to make sure we've appropriately identified the students' needs so that we can be sure when we talk goals and services, we're addressing those needs. Right. Wow. Um, I think I know this one, is a lot. <laughs> no, that's okay. This is it's important information. I think one thing that parents don't always know is that you can go get outside testing done, and that is like part of your rights to do. It is. It, it, it is considered a procedural safeguard. And anytime the school district conducts an evaluation, uh, parents have the right to seek an individualized education evaluation, or it's often called by the acronym of an IEE. So parents who might be listening to this in your audience, they can simply look up what is an IEE. And because there is a process, right, with anything, you have to request it of your school district. It has to the evaluator has to meet certain criteria, and then if it's approved, the school district will agree to um, provide for that to happen at, at county expense. Right. That is really important for people to know. So now that we've started kind of talking a little bit about private therapy and private testing, um, let's hop in there. So sure. I know sometimes it's hard to, you go into the school district, you get your IEP, and the school maybe starts helping in some ways, but can you talk about how private therapy differs from what the school can provide? Sure. Um, so again, I think that is a great question because we do have to realize that when we're talking about public schools, especially nowadays, we are talking about uh, certain limitations around staff and resources. You know, it is certainly no secret. We have a teacher shortage across the country right. and everybody's trying to serve the most in as meaningful a way as they can. But sometimes that means that we're putting too many kids in a, in a reading group or we're not individualizing our instruction enough. So I certainly, I'm a big supporter of public schools, but I want to say that we, I think we have to be realistic that I personally, as an advocate, don't believe it is possible to meet the needs of, let's say, the most severe and profound dyslexic student in a group setting of five <laughs> or more, right. you know, um, because I, I just, I think there are cases, and this is what I, I work with, with the public school system and the staff that are willing to have these conversations, there are situations where we should know that based upon the child's data and, the, and their need, the severity of the situation they will either need more intensive individualized instruction in the public school, or we need to consider if this is a child who should be getting their services in private therapy, as right. you said. And, and I say that because while we have really well-intentioned teachers who have met the 30-hour requirement from the Institute of Multisensory Instruction and Education, and I love that they've done that, and they can provide you know, a certain type of intervention following in, a, let's say, an Orton-Gillingham scope and sequence, mm -hmm. they don't always have the luxury of spending as much time as they might want with that student or individualizing it as much because they have four kids in their group who have some different needs. Right. So I, I just think parents do have to understand the school district 
is not required to provide you with the absolute Cadillac of services that are individualized <laughs> to your child. And I, I say that not from a, a joking perspective, but from a, it's a hard pill to swallow. You know, I'm also a, a parent of a severely dyslexic student who's now on his way. Um, he's a junior in high school. And I remember as a parent, I had a hard time accepting that the standard really was we just have to help them have access to the curriculum and make progress. Now, fortunately, mm -hmm. that standard has been increased over the years. But where I see private therapy being really important is you do sometimes have children whose needs are not easily met by the, uh, I'll just call it the, the services that the public school can offer. Right. Just being very frank about it. You know, they may not be able to individualize everything for your severely and profoundly dyslexic child. And in providing a group four times a week of 45 minutes, they are most likely meeting the special education requirement. Right. And so this is hard sometimes for parents to accept. So if, if parents have a severely, profoundly dyslexic child and they've tried to advocate at the IEP table and they still don't feel that their child's needs are being met, then that's where, you know, they have to increase their advocacy. They have to consider what are my options? Do I have to go down the path of dispute resolution or do I need to consider um, outside therapy alone or a hybrid of some in school support and some outside support? And what I want to say, Tristan, is there's no one solution for every student, right. which is why I often tell parents that's why there's an that's why the I in IEP is for individualized, right? Yep. <laughs> so we have to consider all of these um, important data points when we're trying to decide, is this a student who can make meaningful progress with public services alone? Or should we be considering only private uh, services because it has to be that targeted, that focused, that prescriptive, that intense by an individual who has, you know, a thousand hours of pr providing this type of an intervention. And we right. know they have a, pr a proven ability to close this gap. So all of these things, um, all of these points, I believe have to be considered by families and even school teams. Yeah. Because while it is rare, it is rare. It is possible that a school district might contract with an outside provider oh, wow. to provide that intensive tier one uh, remediation that that student requires. Right. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned a hybrid of private therapy and school support, which I think is really interesting. So how would you suggest better collaboration, let's say, between those two spots? <laughs> yes. Um, another great question. Uh, you know, if a parent has a student who has an IEP and let's say they're getting some support in school for reading or spelling and that parent you know, has decided they want to supplement that or they want someone with higher qualifications working. So now they have an outside uh, therapist working with that student. My biggest concern as an advocate is that these two individuals don't even know each other right. <laughs> and that they don't, they might have completely different lesson plans for this student. And what we might actually be doing is creating confusion for the student more right. than helping them along to advance their reading and spelling skills. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I say is we, we have to introduce this, the school staff to the private therapist. We want right. to open the doors and give consent for open communication and collaboration. I think also having a frank conversation about the scope and sequence that's being used, looking at the progress monitoring data, you know, what is the school trying to address? What is the private therapist trying to address? And, and nine times out of 10, because they've been providing services 
privately and intensely, the private provider should take the lead in that conversation and really okay. kind of say, you know, here's the data that I have. Um, I've, if they've been working with the student for a longer period of time, then they can openly share, here's what we have found with this student. Here's how they learn best. And through that open communication and collaboration, I think they sh there should be a discussion about triaging these services. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is, if we know that the private provider is working well with the student and they're making incredible progress on working through, let's just say, the different syllable types, reading and spelling, but the private provider is like, you know what, I really would love for you to reinforce these phonemic awareness exercises during the school day, or mm -hmm. you could really work on expanding their written expression in this way, using this um, these, these personalized word list or the this controlled text, practice reading with this controlled text that I'm going to send to you. Through this open collaboration, students can make so much more progress. And I've right. seen this in multiple examples. Now, I, I just want to be very um, open and say it isn't easy to get this in place, right? Because yeah. you you really have the school team believing that we are the educational experts. And then you have the private therapist who has their specialized background and training saying, trust me, I work with these kids all the time, one-on-one, -on -one, and I know. So it has to happen in the spirit of everyone really deciding that we're going to openly communicate and share triage what we're trying to do in the best interest of this child. Right. And when you can get that to happen, and that's what I strive to do as an advocate, that's when that child can really take off in their learning because yeah. you don't have the, let's say the good work that was being done by the private therapist now being undone by maybe a well-intentioned teacher who just doesn't know they're teaching too far ahead in right. a scope and sequence for that child's ability. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, that definitely makes sense. So you had talked about small group instruction and having kids in, you know, groups of four or five at the, at the um, public school level. And I wanted to talk about, you know, how you mentioned that there might be a varying level of difficulties in that group, right? If you find that that small group instruction isn't a good fit per the IEP that you have developed with the school, what do you basically, what do you do? How do you suggest handling that in regards to telling the school, this isn't working for my kid and this is what I'm seeing, but I don't want to reduce their IEP accommodations or dismantle this entire thing that we've built here. I kind of want to just go about handling it in a different way. What do you suggest mm -hmm. there? Yes. Yeah, so I think if parents find themselves in that position, um, many parents also don't know that they can request and reconvene the IEP team multiple times throughout the year. Okay. So it is uh, typically an IEP is provided with the understanding that it will be reviewed a minimum of once a year. But if a parent has a concern like the one you've just described or any other concerns, they should uh, ask to reconvene the IEP team. And then, as we were saying earlier, they should look at what are the needs and the present levels of this child. And that discussion should then lend itself to what is the placement of my child. And so are they in small group instruction? And, and then I think the parent's going to want to explore a little bit deeper. Is this group homogenous in nature, right? Mm -hmm. Are all of these students of the same disability category? Meaning, are they all students who have a specific learning disability? Because unfortunately, I have seen situations where you'll have um, a student with a different disability profile put into a group with students who are operating on a different level. And now the poor teacher is trying to differentiate their instruction 
to people with different eligibility classifications at different paces. And that's not going to be productive for anyone. So, you know, you definitely want to start by diving deeper with the IEP team on, you know, you're certainly the school team is not going to disclose any personal information about the other students. Right. But as a parent, you can confirm, is this group homogenous in nature? Are we all, are all of these students working on the same skills, they have similar gaps. So we don't have a tier two student with a severe and profound tier three student. And when I say tiers, I'm talking about the multi-tiered systems of support. We don't want um, a moderate student with someone who has profound needs because the pacing and the intensity of the instruction should be different. So I think through asking all of those questions, the parent is going to know if they're in agreement with what is being offered. Yeah. And if they're in disagreement, there's um, in this session, it's impossible to speak to all the different paths that might be appropriate for one particular student. But I will say parents have the option of, you know, completely revoking the IEP and withdrawing mm-hmm. all special education services to considering, am I going to work through the dispute resolution process and try to get the IEP changed in some way so that my child's needs are being more appropriately addressed right. to, you know, determining, um, am I going to do more of a hybrid model? Like what we just discussed. And if you, I've helped fa- families navigate that path. And we've had a lot of success in inviting the private therapist to the IEP team conversations so that we can really get everybody at the same table, asking the right questions, having the right discussion about, well, tell us why you placed them in this group. And then we have the private therapist saying, yes, because based on my data, they should be with a group who's at this level. And I understand they're working at this syllable type. I'm just giving you one example, hypothetically. But but then it's not that we're trying to play a game of gotcha. We're trying to, to say, is this group really meeting this child's needs? And if right. not, then as an IEP team, we need to make um, a more informed decision and change their group placement. Right. Or if their needs are that profound, we may need to consider, do they need individualized instruction? Mm-hmm. So um, all of these conversations, all of these outcomes really are possible at the IEP table. And I, I want parents to feel confident and empowered to have these conversations. Right. That's awesome. So it just sounds like parents just don't know that the communication is there for you to have, and you just have to reach out to say, this is what we need and let's talk about it. So that's, thank you for sharing that. Of course. And I, you know, I'm a realistic person. I do understand (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, some parents are like, you make it sound so easy. We tried that. It wasn't easy. (laughs) And I want to just acknowledge that of course, every school team, um, everyone has different personalities. Every, everyone has different knowledge levels, but what I want parents in your audience to know is that you have a right to reconvene the IEP team. You have a right to express your concerns, to look at the data. You have a right to invite whomever you want, whether it's an advocate or your private language therapist to come to that IEP table with you. And you have a right to ask the school team to change, to make a change in your child's instruction, their placement, whatever it is that is concerning you. Not saying you're going to get immediate agreement, but you have a right to ask for all of these things. Of course. Wow. Um, and we've talked a lot about parent advocacy and I want to switch a little bit and say, how do we encourage our parents to encourage our children to advocate for themselves in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I love this question too, because what we know as, as children who learn differently or who have learning, um, 
or, or disabilities of any kind, they do have to one day become a strong self-advocate, right? And I think that the best way we can do that as parents, being the parent of a child who has disabilities, is to start off modeling acceptance, right? Um, unfortunately, I do feel like parents still carry a significant amount of shame around having a child who learns differently. And that was a big part of my personal story was talking openly and publicly about, Hey, if this is what dyslexia looks like, we've got it at our house, you know, we're going to embrace it and we're going to figure it out. And, you know, I think that especially in the Northern Virginia area where we live, everybody wants to have the gifted child. Everybody wants the Mm -hmm. child who's rocking it out of the park and winning the trophies. And there's a high achievement, a high expectation, but there really should be no shame and being a uh, person who learns differently. And in the case of students who have dyslexia, we know they're of average to above average in intelligence. So they absolutely can do everything and anything they want to do. They just may have to learn how to do it differently, learn how to break the reading code, be accommodated a little bit differently along the way. So I think if parents are comfortable having those kind of conversations with their kids in the background and they hear their parents saying, you know, we embrace our child's abilities and disabilities or strengths and weaknesses, and we know they have dyslexia or ADHD, or we know they're working on their speech and we're so proud of them and, and not making this a shameful thing that we keep in the family. We don't tell anybody that you have dyslexia or you have ADHD, just that acceptance and awareness and the freedom to talk to family and friends and neighbors and be like, yeah, you know, if if they're coming to a birthday party and you guys are playing games, just know that, you know, Susie has dyslexia. So she might need some help with that and and normalizing it, right? Normalizing it and making it all okay. Um, I think that goes a long way in our children growing up with um, intact self-esteem and confidence and kind of like, yes, I have dyslexia, but I'm still okay. Or I have ADHD, but I'm, my parents still, you know, think, I I can do whatever I want to do in this life. Um, And so I would say uh, just really talking about it, modeling acceptance. And also, I think as your children get a little bit older in whatever way they are comfortable, uh, encouraging them to talk about it and to share with their classmates in whatever way they're most comfortable. Um, I can think of, you know, really small children who would maybe take the risk of wearing like a shirt that ha- that had something about think differently, you know, and, and was like a shout out to being a student who learned differently and having kids ask about that to a student that I helped who did like an oral report on what dyslexia is oh. and um, some famous people who had dyslexia just to yeah. try to create awareness in their classroom. Um, I love that, you know, many states now have Uh, mandatory teacher training on dyslexia. So Mm -hmm. many teachers understand that these kids can and should do what everyone else in the classroom is doing. So we've made a lot of progress. But um, in terms of the regulations, most school districts, I think it's important for parents to know, are going to want children to start showing up at their IEP meetings and participating in those discussions and decisions at about age 14 on up. Oh, wow. So Yeah. So parents always say to me, well, I don't really want my child going to the IEP meeting and hearing about, you know, their, uh, let's just say their decoding that's in the two percentile, even though their IQ is in the 98th percentile. So what I would say to parents is, again, model this acceptance and in whatever way your child is willing, get them to start talking about it, knowing that at about age 14, the school district will be looking for them to take a more Uh, active role in their own self-advocacy. And then again, as parents, you have a right to say, 
I don't want my child to come to the IEP meeting. I understand you're asking, you can say, I don't believe it's appropriate at this time, or you can work collaboratively and say, I'm going to have them come to the first 15 minutes Mm -hmm. and I'm going to let my child, you know, tell you what's working well and what's challenging for them. And then at that time, I'd like for them to be excused because I'm, you know, whatever it is, I'm protecting their confidence or their social emotional, um, well-being or their self-esteem. And I don't want them to hear all the evaluation results at this time. Right. So, and this is my whole point. I hope that's coming across oh, is yeah. parents actually have the ability to set some of those um, boundaries in protection of their own child and to advocate and help their child in whatever way they think is best. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. I had a friend, um, as I was going through college, they actually got a diagnosis for ADD, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, it was so freeing and they were very open mm-hmm. about it saying like, I just got this diagnosis and you know what, now I understand why it has taken me so long to do these assignments. And it's really helping me through the rest of my college career. And they were incredibly successful. And it just, like I said, was such a weight off their shoulders to be able to mm-hmm. get that and be able to talk about it. Like if someone said, Hey, how's this going? It's like, Oh, well, I've got ADD. I'm working through it, but yeah, you know, I'm able to advocate for myself at this point. Yeah. And the one thing I'd add to that story, which I love is that, you know, the majority, I, I would say almost all parents who take the risk of having that conversation with their child and explaining that you have dyslexia or you have ADHD and here's what it means and modeling that acceptance. They always come back and tell me, you know what? My child was so relieved or my child um, was delighted to find out that there's nothing like you know, that it's not a willingness issue on their part, right. that if there's nothing that they, that they can, that they're doing or not doing to change it, that they're neurologically wired just a little bit differently. And that everybody is right. To some degree, right. we all have cognitive differences. So I think parents are afraid often to tell their kids that they have these differences, but then I think they're pleasantly surprised to find out that it's a relief for the child yeah. and that it actually helps their emotional well-being. Yeah. That's awesome. My last couple of questions, is it ever too late to begin remediation or assistance for any of these special learning, specific learning disabilities? Yeah, I will say no, absolutely not. Never too late. Never, ever, ever too late. Um, of course, like with anything, early identification, early remediation, the better for the child or the individual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll just even give you a practical example. Like in, when students are in elementary school, they have about a 90-minute language arts block. Now, that's a lot of time that we can push right. in or figure out some appropriate remediation. Right. When they're in high school, they have a full academic load. They Mm -hmm. may, if they're lucky, have a study hall, or they may have to give up something that they love, like band or art or um, another area of interest in order to push in and get that specially designed reading remediation. So um, it is never too late, but the sooner we figure this out for these children and the sooner we get them what they need, the faster they can close these gaps. And, um, go on to have a more meaningful and productive educational experience. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, and lastly, what does, and I know this is different for everyone, but what does success look like for a child with dyslexia? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Success is different, right? Because every child with dyslexia is affected a little bit differently. So when I think of success, I think of a, a well-developed student, our child, who understands their abilities and whether 
and they maybe have accepted their disabilities, as we were talking about, they've had the opportunity to get appropriate remediation so that they've closed their gap as much as possible for them in the areas of reading and spelling. And if they haven't been able to close that completely to operate you know, on par with their same age and grade level peers, then they're someone who has embraced their accommodations, their assistive technology, so that there's really no limitations on what they can do or how they can show what they know. And to me, that's what we ultimately want for our children, right? Is the success of not having anyone tell you, you can't do this, or you can't go on to college, or you can't work here because you can't read and spell, or your life is gonna be different because you have this disability. And so to me, success is like all of these pieces of the puzzle coming together, the the emotional well-being, the practical, I've been remediated as well as I can, and then the, you know, the uh, functional, if I can't, if I still have a really hard time with spelling, I know how to use my speech to text technology and my spell check and my assistive technology tools. So I can go on to college and get the degree and whatever I want to get that degree in. And Mm -hmm. my disability isn't adversely impacting my life choices. So to me, that is success. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like exactly what we all want. (laughs) <laughs> at the end of the day. Well, and the other thing I want to add on, because you were talking about a student in college, um, I think that a lot of parents and even children uh, who have dyslexia, you know, they feel like college isn't an option for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's something that parents need to know is that college is an option and should be an option for all children who have uh, dyslexia or a learning difference if they have intact average to above average intelligence. There's no reason why they can't go to college. And many parents worry that the fact that they've had an IEP or some kind of special education program in school is going to impact um, you know, negatively their ability to get into a college. And I do want to share that colleges, you know, it's not disclosed as part of the college application process that a child had an IEP or any type of a special education program. So parents don't need to worry about that. What I will say though, is that if they do have a disability and they want to go to a college and take advantage of the student disability services, Mm -hmm. then they probably are going to want to disclose that they had this kind of support in the past. But I I do uh, find that when I talk to parents, that when they find out their child has a disability like dyslexia, they automatically start lowering, lowering the bar for what is possible. Mm -hmm. And so your story of sharing how your friend went all the way to college and then embraced their disability at that level, I think really reinforces our our point that it is never too late. And really, you don't have to have these limitations or operate under this mindset that your child's going to have a limited life in some way. Right. Yeah. I've had, I've had other friends that were um, diagnosed throughout middle elementary and early high school with dyslexia and ADHD and a combination Mm -hmm. of the two. And they have gone through everything. They've gone through college and they're feeling incredibly successful in what they're doing. They're doing what they want to be doing. So Mm -hmm. I have even, even though I don't know the ins and outs of it at a personal level, I have seen success um, in their stories as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I just want to say I love what you all do at the reading, reading language and learning center, because I think that your work is also critically important in helping to change the lives of these kids, you know, and to give them the tools 
and the skills and the positive reinforcement and the encouragement that they need um, to feel like they truly can go on and do whatever it is that they want to do. So thank you for all that you do for the dyslexic community as well. Well, thank you. It was such a pleasure to have you here and so much fun to just go through and learn all of these things and share it with people who who may be in a position where they're just at a loss for what mm-hmm. to start doing um, to advocate for their child, or as you know, a young adult who's looking to um, advocate for themselves, maybe at a college level or even in you know in a job in a sense. But thank you so much for being here. This was truly a pleasure. Oh no, it's my my honor, honestly. And what I will say is, if there are parents in your um, audience who want to have a quick conversation about dyslexia, or if they um, are looking for resources or just need to be pointed in the right direction, um, they are welcome to sign up for a discovery session on our website. I do still as part of my community service, I conduct, you know, complimentary uh, quick calls with parents and there's no obligation at all. I just like, like you and your company, we, we believe in putting out accurate information. And again, this is under the mission of really trying to ensure that all kids with dyslexia get what they need. So um, it's been a, a joy to be here with you. Thank you so much. I'll make sure to pop, um, your website in the show notes, like I said earlier, so that people can um, get to that discovery call, especially if they're looking for help. Yeah. Yeah. And we also have resources on our website, um, you know, that might be helpful to parents, but I know, I know it's a lot and it's not, it's not anything we can cover all the, um, or give all the answers in this short period of time, but I hope it's been helpful to your audience. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much to everyone for listening today. Make sure to follow us on your favorite podcasting app, as well as our social media at Reading LL Center, so you know when we release new episodes. We look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks.